All right, so we're looking at Exodus 11, chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 13. And then we're going to skip down in chapter 12 to verses 21 through 32, and then, cha- uh, and then verse 51. So let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one, one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb." Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt." both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then skipping to verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. 
And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up. Go out from among my people, both, of you, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. <clears throat> and verse 51, And on that very day the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. So let me pray for us before we look at it further tonight. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, we pray tonight, as we do every week, that you would be with us. Uh, That um, as we come to a passage that in some ways is very difficult, uh, that you would be with us to help us to understand it. That you would give us ears to hear. That you would um, guide us into the truth of our own sinfulness, and yet even more so the uh, glorious truth of your grace and your mercy. Uh, We need it, and we beg you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm not sure what your driver's ed class was like. Mine was almost 25 years ago. By the way, in Mississippi, uh, at that time, uh, I got my license the day I turned 15. Full-fledged, no restrictions. I was 14 the day before, and then bam, full license, okay? Different day. So uh, my driver's ed class, I don't know what yours was like, but in mine, uh, we had to watch some terrible, you probably had to do the same thing, right? Some sort of terrible video that was really gory and and ill-produced, but, uh, you know, called something like blood runs red on the highway or something awful like that. And it was all about people driving poorly, uh, making mistakes, running over pedestrians, killing them, those sorts of things, getting into wrecks, lots of bad stuff. And there's blood all over the place. And the point of it was to show you that driving a car is a big deal. Uh, that, it's, that it really is a matter of life and death. Right? This, you know, these very extreme scenarios are trying to impress upon you just how serious driving a car is. Right? It's not something to be taken lightly. And so if you've been with us, you know we're studying, as we study through Exodus... Um, we're, right, Exodus is this great story of God saving his people out of Egypt, bringing great salvation. And every week we're saying that our, our theme is that Exodus is really the pattern of salvation. That is to say that how we see God save in Exodus uh, is really the same way that he saves today. 
So as we sort of zero in and look at these, uh, each of these stories, uh, we can learn a great deal about what it looks like to experience God's salvation here and now. Um, and as we, as we take a look at this passage, I think this passage is a, is a little bit like that video. Um, because everything that we see in this passage is really extreme. It's a very extreme passage. And I think it's showing us that salvation is a matter of life and death. That salvation itself is extreme. And I want to look at that in two ways. I want you to see two things. First, we're going to look at how the the problem is extreme. Uh, We could also call that, uh, basically the idea there is that sin requires blood. Our second point is going to be that the solution is extreme. And what we're going to see there is that God accepts a substitute. So first, the problem is extreme. And as we begin, I think it's important to right, uh, get some sort of context. Where are we? What's going on in the book? What have we looked at? Um, so if you remember last week, God, through uh, Moses, demanded that Pharaoh let his people go. And Pharaoh says, no, not going to let you go. I don't know the God that you worship. Who is the God that you worship? And so Moses says, God's going to send plagues if you don't let his people go. And he says, I'm not letting them go. And so then there's the first, the first plague. And Pharaoh relents and says, okay, all right, just make it stop. And it stops, and he says, no, never mind, you can't. I'm not letting the people go. And so then there's another plague. And that happens, as we looked at last week, nine times. And so here tonight, basically, we come to the tenth and final plague on Egypt. So God goes, uh, has Moses go tell Pharaoh that if he doesn't let his people go, this is the last chance. If you don't let his people go, then he is going to sweep through the land of Egypt. And he is going to claim the life. He is going to kill the firstborn in every single household in Egypt. Somebody's going to die in every single house. And he's very clear. It's everybody from you, Pharaoh, the the most powerful man in the world, all the way down to your servants, to the guy that's in your dungeon. It's going to apply to everybody. It's very extreme. And by the way, uh, tonight I'm I'm using extreme, not not as sort of a... um, not to give any sort of value to it, right? Like... uh, if you react some way and your mom might say, like, that's a little extreme, right? What she means is that's too far, right? That's not what I mean by this. I mean extreme um, just to the uttermost. So that's what he says to Egypt, but not to Israel, right? What we just read, he says, look, the destroyer is coming for you, Egypt, but not for Israel. To Israel, his people, he gives them these very detailed instructions about how to be saved from this upcoming judgment, right? Right? He tells them to take a lamb, a perfect spotless lamb, keep it for four days, and then cut its throat, and take that blood and paint it around your door, right? The doorpost or the sides, the lintel is the top of the door. Paint that blood around the door of your house, and then come inside and as a family, eat that lamb, cook it, and then eat it, right? It's... That's also very extreme. I mean, if you think about it, like, as you read this passage, there's basically just death and blood all over the place. 
It's a very gory passage. There's blood everywhere. So why is there so much death and blood splashed all over this story? And I think the answer is because God is, is showing us how serious sin is. He's demonstrating to us how serious sin is. If you were here last week, uh, you know that we talked about that God is basically in the plagues bringing judgment on Egypt because they're worshiping something other than Him. Because they're disobeying Him. And He's trying to show them that you, you disobey Me, you worship something other than Me, only to your own destruction. That the natural outcome of worshiping something else is dysfunction. And here, it's God is showing us the, the natural, the, the sort of ultimate conclusion to it all. Right? The New Testament tells us that the wages of sin, right, what you earn for yourself in sin, is what? Death. Right? That going against the creator of the universe. When you go against Him, you're going against the very fabric of the universe. And so sin leads to dysfunction and ultimately to death. Alright, so you might be thinking though, alright, well so why doesn't God just forgive sin? Why doesn't He just forgive? Why does there have to be this, this bloodshed? And look, here's the, here's the reason. Because, because sin naturally... And necessarily creates a debt. It creates a debt, and that debt has to be paid. Right? If you think about it, if there's going to be forgiveness in any situation, there has to be justice. The situation has to be made right between two parties. So, in other words, the debt has to get paid. I'll give you a couple of illustrations. If you, uh, if you borrowed from our family, which, sorry, we can't do this, but if you borrowed from us $5,000 uh, because you, were, you needed to buy a car, and we loan you $5,000, and you intend to pay it back, but then you can't pay it back, what happens? Well, either somehow you're going to have to pay it back, or you're going to need to find somebody to pay it back for you, or What? We're going to pay for it, right? Because in that scenario, I, even if I say like, okay, you don't have to worry about it. Well, that's good news for you. But it means that Amy and I lose out on $5,000. We swallow the debt. It costs me. But you see, it necessarily costs somebody. And you know this from your own experience just in, in situations in life. If somebody wrongs you in some way, Let's say somebody says something that's false and hurtful behind your back. You know, maybe they're trying to be funny. Maybe they're trying to make themselves look better. But, but you're friends with them and they say something about you that's not true and it's, it's hurtful to you. Um, and, and you find out about it. Well, they've created, really, if you think about it, they've created a debt with you. They owe you. And usually what we do, though it's, it's not right, but usually what we do is we, we make them pay for that, right? We hold a grudge against them. We take out however much we feel like that was worth, we, we take it out of them. Uh, maybe we uh, disparage them to that extent. We talk about them behind their back. We give them the cold shoulder, uh, whatever it might look like. 
We hold it over their head somehow. But if we're going to forgive them, then what it means is that we don't make them pay back what they owe us. And so what that means is that we swallow it, that you have to swallow it. So you see, the debt still gets paid by somebody. It necessarily has to get paid by somebody. So our sin has created a debt with God. And forgiveness, it actually requires justice. It has to have justice. Uh, Leviticus 17 testifies to this. Hebrews 9.22 says this. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And look, here's something that you need to, you need to know. And maybe we should have said this earlier. I don't know. It's hard to know where to fit it in. But Israel is actually just as guilty as Egypt is. And now you can actually infer that from the passage, right? Um, if you think about it. Because if they weren't, what, what other reason is there that, um, for God giving them the instructions that he gives them? Right? Um, he, tells them, he tells them what they need to do so that the destroyer passes over their house too. And even if you don't infer it from the passage, uh, we get information later in the Old Testament um, in Joshua 24, 14. Uh, so Joshua, talking to the next generation after the one we're reading about, says this. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If you're taking notes, Ezekiel 20 is actually even more explicit about how Israel served Egyptian gods when they were in Egypt. So they're just as guilty. And so look, all of this goes to say that that all of this death and bloodshed, whether it's of the firstborn, of the lamb, whatever it is, all of that goes to show that the problem that both Egypt and Israel have is really extreme. It's a huge problem. If the consequence or the solution is, is this, this kind of death, then that means the problem is really big. right? If you went to the doctor because you didn't feel well, and the doctor says, okay, the answer is rounds of chemotherapy and radiation. Well, you can know what, right? Well, if that's the answer, the problem must be pretty bad, Right? I mean, can you imagine the scene that's sort of pictured here of, of a father of this family grabbing a lamb that had lived with your family, by the way, for four days. I don't know if you catch that. Get the lamb on the tent on the 14th day. Pick up a knife and kill this lamb. And with, the, with the, you know, one of the kids asking, Daddy, what, what are you doing? Why, why do we do this? Right? This is a pretty extreme situation. What does it mean? And the answer to the question, this isn't the full answer, but for this point, the beginning of the answer is, because, son, this is what we deserve to have happen to us. Right? If you're sitting there listening to this and you think, okay, that is, off, that is barbaric. That's the point. This is an enormous deal. So what does it mean for us? How do we apply it real quick? 
Well, very simply, this is what you and I deserve. You and I deserve death for not worshiping God, for putting other things before Him, for what the Bible calls sin. And it's not because He's mean, it's because we're going against the way the universe is constructed. Because sin is a, it's showing us that sin is an enormous deal. That you, ha, you and I have a big problem. A lot bigger than you might realize. And look, it's for you, whether you are parallel to the um, Egyptian slave master, right? The pagan don't care a thing in the world about your God. Or whether you're the one that grew up in the middle of the covenant people. You've got an enormous problem. But we tend to look at it, we tend to take sin and minimize it, right? I've got a, you know, I don't gossip a ton. I mean, yeah, I gossip a little bit, but I don't have a huge problem. Um, I mean, yeah, I shade the truth a little bit, but what, you know, it's just a, a little white lie. I mean, I'm not addicted to pornography. I mean, sure, right? Look at it a little bit, but everybody looks at it some. It's not that big a deal. We love to, we tend to minimize sin, and the Bible is looking at you and me and saying, no, 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 you have no idea how big your problem is. And right, we get this this vivid picture of this bloodshed that says, um, this is how big of a problem it is. Do you see that? Do you know that you have an enormous problem? If you do, that's actually a good place to be in. And I know that might sound strange, but it's a good place because if you see the reality of the problem, at the very least, at least you're looking for a solution. Recognize that you need one. And so that's what we need to look at now. Second point I want you to see is that just as the, uh, the problem is very extreme, the solution is also extreme. Like I said, the, the point, the thrust of this is that God accepts a substitute. God accepts a substitute. Um, like we've said, God gives these careful instructions to Israel. Take a lamb, kill it, paint the sides of your door, top of your door. And when the destroyer comes by your house, he's going to see that blood and he's going to pass by. But that's got to be astounding to hear it for the first time. Most of you probably grew up in church and like, yep, you know, you got the flannel graph with the you know, X over the door or whatever. And you know, you've just grown up with it. But think about this. That God is telling them that even though you deserve to die, the destroyer, whatever that looks like, is going to pass through. Every house is going to have somebody dead in it. But here's how you can avoid that. I'm going to save you. I'm going to... What you see is that God is going to accept a substitute in your place. You see that payment has to be made, but He's going to accept some other payment than one of your kids. Or you. If you're the firstborn. Basically what they see is that, that something else is going to stand in their place. And it's going to take the punishment for them. I read an article, uh, I think it was from Slate.com. I'm, I think that's right. Uh, it was from five years ago, from 2012. But it was about how, so I don't know if it's still going on, but how in China uh, there was uh, sort of this... Um, tendency uh, was popping up where people, particularly wealthy people, that were charged with crimes were 
we're getting people to pose, pose as them in the legal system. They would pay them, but they would get people to take their place in the legal system. So they would show up, uh, they would be found guilty, right, if they're found guilty, and they would take the punishment for them literally. They would, they would go to jail for, you know, however many years instead of them. Uh, it was, it's called, I'm sure this is wrong how you pronounce it, but Ding Zui. And it, uh, if you translate it literally, evidently means substitute criminal. That somebody else is going to take what you deserve in your place. It's apparently, it's not officially, uh, it's officially illegal, but it's sort of, uh, the article called it an open secret. People know it happens and uh, that's kind of what is going on. But you're guilty, but they go to jail in your place. Right? That's what this is saying. Now I want you to try to picture, I want you to put yourself back in Egypt that night. I want you to try to picture what, how this would have played out. If you're an Israelite and you trusted God, you trusted what God said, and so you, you, know, you painted, you kill the lamb, you paint your door, blood around the door, and then you go inside with your family and you wait. And you wonder what's going on and maybe you're, you're nervous and you're huddled up with your family. And maybe you can hear, you know, you begin to hear screams off in the distance of, of people realizing that some of their families are dead. And as you wait through, you know, throughout the night um, with your family, but then, you know, all of a sudden Pharaoh gives the order and word starts to get out that Pharaoh says, fine, get out of here. And so you walk out of your house and you walk out of your house and and you look off in the distance and the first thing you see are some, uh, you can see some Egyptian houses down the way. And what you see are people coming out of those houses and they're crying, and, and, and they're, they're dragging a dead body out. And, and then you look at your neighbors closest to you, and you look at your neighbor on the right, and, and the guy that lives to your right, let's say he's, a really, he's actually a really good guy. You like this guy and his family a lot. Um, he, yeah, he seems to be a good guy. Takes care of his family, seems like an honorable guy. And, and you, you watch and you count, and all his family comes out. And they're okay. And then the guy that lives next to you, he's not a good guy. He, he's an Israelite. But he, you know, he's just not a good dude. He's kind of a jerk. Um, he actually does just outright worship the same idols that the Egyptians you know, do. But he did the you know, lamb thing. And you watch as he comes out of his house. And you count his kids. And, and they're all okay too. And as you sit there and as you add all this up... You get this mental picture of what must have happened. You get this picture of the destroyer. Again, whatever that looks like. Going to the first house, and I don't know if they had windows, right, but just play along. And he looks in the window of the first house, and it's clearly an Egyptian house because there are Egyptian idols on the shelf and, and all over the place. And he sees that this is a house of Egyptian idolaters, and he walks in, and he takes the life of the firstborn. And then he goes to the next house and he looks in and he sees the same thing. And he goes in and there's another death he takes. And then he comes to the next house 
And he looks in the window and he sees the same Egyptian idols, you know, all over the place, on the shelf. And he goes for the door, but there's, there's blood around the door. So he goes to the next house. Right? I think as you walk out of your house and you, as you look around and as all of that begins to dawn on you, what, it, what really went down, I think you're left with a handful of realities, right, that have to be pretty clear to you. Number one, you have to realize, wait a minute, we're all way more guilty than we realize. Or you at least realize, I, I am just as guilty as anybody else. I think you would have to realize that you were saved only because of that blood on the door. Right? The good guy, the bad guy, you, you're all okay. And you'd have to realize it is not because of anything good you did. It's not because you stopped doing some bad stuff, because you didn't worship the Egyptian idols as much as that guy. But it was only because of the blood. Because that thing stood in your place. I think you would have to realize that you were saved because of that blood and not even because of how strongly you believed in it. Ultimately, you'd have to see that God saves people by grace because he sends a substitute. All right, so what about us? We've got to hustle. Because we could say, all right, that's neato for the Israelites, right? But what about me and you? And you might also be thinking, how could a, like, it does, in some ways it doesn't seem fair, how could a lamb do that? How could a, it's either the firstborn son or this lamb. Well, Hebrews tells us that the lamb doesn't actually take away the sins. But really the lamb was a pointer ahead to another lamb, right? This lamb of Passover was perfect, spotless, without blemish. It was a male lamb. You weren't supposed to break its bones. It's all a pointer to Jesus Christ. And when Jesus shows up, what happens? What does John the Baptist say about him? John 1.29. He says, behold, he says, look, that's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And what does Jesus do? He lives a perfect life without blemish. And then, right, he se- when he celebrates Passover, when he's celebrating this very event, what does he do? He takes bread and he says, this bread is like my body. It's going to break. And this uh, wine is like my blood. It's going to be poured out. Right? It's a pointer to his death. It's all pointing forward to his life and his death on the cross. In other words, it's showing us that he is our substitute. That God still saves in the same way that he did back then. By accepting a substitute to stand in your place. That the penalty is still deserved and it will still be required, but it can be taken out on somebody else. And Jesus comes and says, I'm going to take it in your place. Jesus Christ, first and foremost, is our substitute. Look, if you get nothing else from RUF in your college career, get this. That Jesus, first and foremost, is your substitute. He's not first and foremost your example or your teacher. He is first and foremost your substitute. That's the good news of the gospel. He lived a perfect life in your place. He died a horrific death in your place. 
So what does that mean for us, very quickly? How do we, uh, what does that mean for us? handful of things. One, uh, it helps us to see the reality of our guilt and sin even that much more clearly, right? If the answer to our problem is the horrific death of the sinless Son of God, if that's what fixes the problem, the problem is big, right? The problem's way bigger than a bunch of dead lambs. It means that you and I are, are far more sinful than we realize. And, you know, it just might mean that maybe the reason when we go to church um, or when you come to RUF, or, and by you I mean me, and you worship and you just don't feel the love of God like you want to, maybe it's because you don't really feel the problem like you should. Maybe it's because we think, I'm not that bad. I mean, yeah, I'm a sinner. I qualify. But, I mean, I'm not that bad. It helps us to see our sin and guilt more clearly. Secondly, it means that your guilt really is gone. And look, you need to hear this, right? It means that your punishment for everything that you have done wrong and the things that you haven't done right, it's gone. That every ounce of wrath that God has for you, it's it's already been paid for. So whatever it is that plagues your conscience, give it a name. And see that Jesus became that on the cross. That Jesus got punished. Like, pick what it is for you and, and see, call Jesus that. That Jesus died. Jesus died as the drunk. As the cheater. As the slut. As the pervert. As the liar. Pick your name. Jesus took that punishment and said, there is nothing left for you. Your guilt is gone. It means that even if you have weak faith, you're still saved. Because what saves you is the blood. The blood on the door. Not how well you painted it on there and made sure, right, like, oh, I got it just right. No, just the blood. Not how much you sat in that house and... And worried, like I painted my door, but I just, I don't know, I just still feel, I've been so bad. Right? It's not how strongly you hang on to the name of Jesus that saves you. What saves you is Jesus' blood. Fourthly and finally, you're saved by grace. And it's not because of anything good you've done or bad that you've avoided. You don't clean yourself up to get God to save you. And you don't pay Him back by doing good stuff. It's not a loan that you you owe Him. So it means that you need to come to Jesus tonight just as you are. Don't go home and wait until you haven't done that thing for at least a week and then then I'll kind of come to Jesus. You come now. Because it really is by grace. I want to end with this illustration. Actually, I want to go back to the, uh, the substitute criminals, right? In China. Because you might notice, like, well, eh, it's a decent illustration, but it doesn't really add up because those people actually paid to have a substitute, right? That's how they would get them. Like, hey, I'll, you know, you're poor, I will pay you and set your whole family up, which doesn't cost me a ton, but it'll be huge for you if you'll go to jail for a few years. So people will do it. Well, that's kind of not the best illustration. But the, the article did talk about one girl 
that was a criminal substitute for free. And the reason she did it for free was because the the true criminal was somebody that she loved a whole lot. It was the dad that adopted her. And it didn't go into much detail, but she gave herself, she put herself in his place absolutely for free because she loved him. And she would rather bear that punishment for him because he probably couldn't. And look, that's just a little hint of the gospel, of what Jesus does for you and for me. And that is an extreme salvation. It's extremely beautiful. Right? Our problem is huge and extreme, but, but the solution is extremely beautiful. And he invites you into that love right now. Maybe for the first time. He invites you to take it or just come and take it afresh. That's an invitation. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you that you accept a substitute in our place. And not only do you accept one, but you provide it. We don't deserve it. Father, thank you for that truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.